You see, prophecy in Scripture is not primarily about something. It is about someone. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study in the book of Romans, what many have called the greatest book of the Bible. We're in the introduction in a message entitled The Greatest Christian, in which Dr. Brogy has been giving a thumbnail sketch of the Apostle Paul, author of this letter to the Romans. We've already looked at Paul's master and at his mission, and today we look at the Apostle's message. Let's rejoin as Pastor Carl again reads Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What was it that the apostle Paul chose to live and die for? Very simply stated here, the gospel of God. Would you circle the word set apart? It's a very important Greek word. It's the Greek word aphorizo. And from the same verb comes a noun, pharisaos. You can hear the word Pharisee. What was a Pharisee? A Pharisee was literally a separated one. The only problem was that the Pharisees had a distorted view of separation. They were simply separated from certain things. But in Scripture, the emphasis is not simply in being separated from certain things, but being separated to certain things. Separation is not simply I don't smoke or drink or watch wicked stuff or act immorally. That's all well and good, but biblical separation is also a call to something. Listen, some of Christians I've met are some of the most mean ornery and obnoxious people I've ever encountered in the way that they deal with the lost people and sometimes even with the saved. But Paul's emphasis and the Word of God's emphasis is not simply being separated from something, but being separated to something. And what is it that he has separated or set apart for? He has set apart, or as the King James renders it, he has separated for the gospel of God. Now, if you think about it, everybody here is separated or set apart to something. And if you listen to a person long enough, what comes out of their mouth will show you what's down in their heart. Listen to a person talk. And after a while, when you hang with them, you discover what it is that is the driving force in their life. But if you're a Christian, no matter what your line of work may be, God teaches you're set apart for the gospel of God. The businessman is not simply to dedicate himself to his business. He is to dedicate his business to the gospel. Listen, whatever you set yourself apart to, you will become like. It will mold you. It will shape you. If you're dedicated to the world, you will become worldly. If you're dedicated to, the, to sin, you will become like the devil. But if you're dedicated to the gospel of God, you will become more and more Christ-like. And there are certain aspects of the gospel message that Paul preached that I want you to note very carefully here in these opening verses. Number one, notice it is the gospel of God. 
Do you remember English grammar? A lot of you didn't have English grammar. You had New English or Modern English as they called it. But if you remember in English, there's a genitive or a possessive. And so you could render this construction, not just the gospel of God, but God's gospel. Or you could say, this is the gospel whose source is in God. Now in 2 Corinthians, Paul warns of men who preach another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. And I've heard some of these men on television. They will talk about the gospel. They will talk about the spirit. They will even talk about Jesus, but it is another Jesus. When Paul wrote to the church of Galatia, he warned the believers when he wrote that there are some who are wanting to disturb you, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Anathema. It's a very strong word. You could paraphrase it, damned to hell. And Paul says that under the inspiration of the Spirit. Why? Because God hates it when people teach another gospel because God's heart is the salvation of souls. When I read the Book of Mormon or see a copy of it, what they call another testament, I can't help but think of this verse. And the irony of it all is that Joseph Smith said an angel appeared to him who led him to the plates, who helped him to translate those plates regarding his gospel. But Paul is very clear that there is only one gospel and it is the gospel of God. It is not my gospel. It is not your gospel. It is not this church's gospel. It is not this pastor's gospel. I didn't invent it. The apostles didn't think it up. It was revealed and entrusted to them. It is the gospel of God. We are to preach it. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Vance Habner used to say we're called not to be editors, just newsboys. We don't rewrite it. We don't adapt it to make it seem good for the culture in which we are to live. We are to preach it clearly, precisely, and under the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is going to teach you how if you will stick with me in Romans. I hope you won't miss a single sermon. And if you have to be away on some Sunday, go listen to it online. Learn the book of Romans. It will change your life. Listen, when I think of these guys who stand up in the pulpit week after week, they maybe read a, a passage of Scripture to make it seem like it's Christian, and then they get up and talk about all kinds of things for 30 minutes. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> I'd run out of material in a, in a month. I'm, I'm too dumb to preach that way. But I'm too wise to preach anything other than the gospel of God, the Word of God. And this is God's gospel, and it's found beginning in the book of Genesis all the way through the Revelation. And it is good news to save. Now, I realize that there are some people who can preach the gospel better than I can. But no one can preach a better gospel than the one I preach because there is only one gospel, and this gospel is sourced in God. Notice what else we learn about this gospel in verse 2. Which... He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, of course, the prophets in the Holy Scriptures he's referring to here is the Old Testament. 
Uh, just before I preached Obadiah in 2 John, I spent 22 months preaching the book of Genesis. And I can preach the gospel from Genesis. I don't have to preach the gospel just in the New Testament because the plan of salvation is found all the way through the Word of God. Someone might ask, have you read the four gospels? Yes, but I've read all 66 gospels because the gospel is found in every single book. Martin Luther, describing the relationship between the Old and New Testament, wrote a couplet in German that could be translated, enfolded in the Old, unfolded in the New. In the early part of the last century, some anonymous writer said, the New is the Old contained, the Old is the New explained. The New is the Old concealed, the Old is the New revealed. The new is the old foreshown. The old is the new full grown. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 2. He says the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The whole of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. Hold your finger here and turn back to the gospel of John, would you? The gospel of John chapter 5. I want you to see something. Let me just remind you of what took place in the early part of John 5. Jesus comes to a place called the pool of Bethesda, a word that's come into cities like Bethesda, Bethesda Maryland and uh, hospitals with the word Bethesda in it because it was a place of healing. And Jesus healed a man, a paralytic, and the Jewish leaders got very upset with him because they said he did work on the Sabbath by healing this man. And so Jesus counters them and look down if you would at verse uh, 39. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that bear witness of me. Nowhere, I suppose, in anywhere of the Bible is the tragic failure of the Pharisees to grasp God's truth and God's word and its meaning as seen in their study of Scripture. Now, I know if you're using the King James, it, it, it translates it, search the scriptures like a command. And technically, the Greek can be translated as a command or in the indicative. But I think the context best bears out, not so much of something that he's commanding them to do, but he's reminding them of what they have done. He said, you search the scriptures. But the problem is your motivation in that when you study the scriptures, you think that in them you have eternal life. But Jesus wants them to know that there is nothing intrinsically life-giving about the Bible if you do not apply its message. He says it is these, that is the Old Testament scriptures... Remember, the first word of the New Testament had not yet been penned. It is these that bear witness of me. And so Paul is really doing the same thing here in Romans. Don't leave John yet. When he's speaking of the gospel, he's saying the scriptures, the prophets spoke of it. I went through Romans this week and I said, how much does Paul, who has as his theme the gospel, interact with the Old Testament? If I counted it right, he refers to Genesis five times, Exodus four times, Leviticus two times, Deuteronomy five times, 1 Kings two times, Psalms 15 times, Proverbs two times, Isaiah 19 times, Ezekiel one time, Hosea two times, Joel one time, Nahum one time, Habakkuk one time, and Malachi one time. 
Now, most people, when they think of Jesus Christ, their mind immediately goes to the New Testament. Yet Jesus says before the New Testament was ever written that the scriptures bear witness of me. And if you examine the Old Testament carefully, you will discover that every single Old Testament book in some way references the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus is saying here, you've read it, but you don't get it. Listen, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you're going to discover that the interpretive key is Jesus Christ. Either by predictive prophecy, by type, by revelatory feast, by some anticipatory statute. All of the Old Testament speaks of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet these religious leaders were totally blind to that. They had become so self-righteous, so self-sufficient, so self-sustaining that they ignored their need of a Savior and they were blinded to the scriptures that spoke of that. And so here were Pharisees who sought to know the Word of God, but they did not know the God of the Word. Even their scribes counted the very letters of the text but they missed the truth behind those letters. And so Jesus says in verse 45, notice, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Now Moses, of course, was long dead by this time, but his writings, which comprised the first five books of the Bible, were very much alive. Verse 46, if you believed Moses, as they claimed, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses wrote 1,400 years before Christ. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Listen, whenever a pastor, whenever some university professor or some so-called scholar denies Mosaic authorship and talks about multiple authors of the Pentateuch, JEPD and all the like, a red flag ought to go up. Jesus is saying, if you won't believe Moses, if you won't believe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, neither will you believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We recently studied and spent a lot of time in Genesis. We saw that Genesis was the most attacked book in all of the Bible. Why? Because Satan knows if he can create unbelief with the Mosaic writing, he can create unbelief with the heart and center of the whole scripture, which is the Lord Jesus. And so there on the Emmaus Road, when Jesus met those two men, beginning with Moses, and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Please note what this verse does not say. It does not say he explained all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Notice carefully the placement of the word all. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. His statement is informing us that there are things in all of the scriptures in every book of the Bible that concern him. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, you will find the Lord Jesus in every single book. When you step into the book of Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he is the smitten rock. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet who is to come. In Joshua, he is the captain of the army of the Lord of hosts. In Judges, he is the deliverer of his people. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. 
In 1 Samuel, he's the anointed one. In 2 Samuel, he is the king and throne. In 1 Kings, he is the Lord filling his temple. In 2 Kings, he is the royal seed. In 1 Chronicles, he's the glorious king. In 2 Chronicles, he is the Lord who appears to Solomon. In Ezra, he is the Lord of our fathers. In Nehemiah, he is the restorer of Israel. In Esther, he is the advocate who pleads for his people Israel. In Job, he is the redeemer who lives and will someday stand on the earth. In the book of Psalms, he is the good shepherd. In the Proverbs, he's the embodiment of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the key that unlocks the meaning to life. In the Song of Solomon, he is the heavenly bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, eternal father. He is the virgin-born prince of peace. He is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is the divine potter who's molding and making lives and lamentations. He is the broken-hearted Jehovah weeping over his people. In Ezekiel, he is the glory of God. In Daniel, he is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that will smite the nations of the world. In Hosea, he is the child called out of Egypt. In Amos, he is the judge of the nations. In Obadiah, he is the Lord and coming king. In Jonah, he is the messenger to the Gentiles. In Micah, he is Bethlehem's baby who will be ruler of Israel. In Nahum, he is the stronghold in the day of trouble. In Habakkuk, he is the Lord in his holy temple. In Zephaniah, he is the king of Israel. In Haggai, he is the Lord of hosts. In Zechariah, he is the Lord coming into Jerusalem on a donkey who will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. And in Malachi, he is the coming messenger, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. All the way through the scripture, it is about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, prophecy in Scripture is not primarily about something. It is about someone. And that's what Paul is referring to here in verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so the message that set Paul apart as an apostle, that sets you apart as a believer, because you too have been given the Great Commission, is the gospel of God promised beforehand in the Old Testament. But notice something else about this gospel. Notice verse 3. Concerning his son. The good news is concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who has declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ our Lord. Two key verbs in verses 3 and 4 that properly communicate the Christ of the Bible. In verse 3 I have an underline was born and in verse 4 the word declared. First he was born according According to the flesh that speaks of his miraculous incarnation as he comes into this world. And verse 3 also speaks that he was declared. Or verse 4, he was declared the Son of God with power. That speaks of his deity. And so in one sentence, we have a reference to both his humanity and to his deity. Two verbs, born and declared, describing his two natures. He was born, referring to his human nature. He was declared referring to his divine nature. Listen, understand, Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, has always been the eternal Son of God. But a point in time in human history, he stepped into human flesh and became a part of the human race. He was born according to the flesh 
affirming his humanity. He was declared the son of God through the resurrection, declaring his deity. G. Campbell Morgan, two generations ago, said it this way. He said, Jesus Christ was the God-man, not God-indwelling man. All Christians are indwelled by God and not man who has become God. Of such, there have been none except in the midst of pagan religions. But God and man combining in one personality, two natures. Christ is not all man and no God. He's not all God and no man. He's not half God, half man. He's the God-man. And so Jesus was both born and declared. And unless you understand that, you will not have a proper representation of who he is. And many today have another Jesus. You say, why is it important that he be both God and man? Well, Paul will teach us. Had he not been a man, since the wages of sin is death and God is spirit, and spirit cannot shed blood for, 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 for someone, God had to incarnate himself. He had to become a man to come and experience the physical and spiritual separation that we know. And had he not been a man, he would not be able to identify with our infirmities. He would not be touched with our feelings. And if Jesus were not God, well, certainly he would be a liar because he claimed to be Yahweh. And if he was a liar, he was a sinner. And if he was a sinner, he certainly was not the savior of the world. But if Jesus were not God, he could not pay the eternal debt. You as finite will take an eternity to pay for your sin where Jesus is infinite in a split second of time for the sins of the whole world for every person who has ever lived can pay our sin debt and were he not God he could not intercede on our behalf for how could he hear the prayers of millions of people all at once if he were not the omniscient omnipotent son of God listen Paul is going to explain these doctrines all the way through Romans but just in kernel form here in the introduction he says he is descendant of David, while at the same time being the sovereign, reigning, resurrected Lord. By the way, did you notice the reference to the Trinity here in the text? In verses 1 and 2, there's an obvious reference to God the Father. In verse 3, a clear reference to God the Son. And in verse 4, a reference to God the Holy Spirit. As I told one Muslim woman this week, it's not one person plus one person plus one person equals three gods. No, that's not the doctrine of the Trinity. It is one person times one person times one person equals one God, a thought that Paul is going to further develop for us here in Romans. Listen, Romans is a great theological treasure. But please understand that our job as pastors and our, jobs as, our job as a Christian is not simply sharing and preaching theology. Our job is to preach and teach Jesus Christ and all theology properly understood will bring you back to the Lord Jesus. As Christians, we don't preach a code. We're not called to do that. Do this, do that. We don't preach a cause. Get some kind of sign and mark behind it. We don't preach a creed. All those things are important. We don't preach a church. We don't preach a code, a creed, a church. We preach Christ and Him crucified. It's all about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we just cracked the door to this great letter. But I don't want you to miss what 
Paul is and why God used him so mightily. Here is a man who had a master, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Here was a man on a mission. He's called as an apostle. And here's a man with a message of which he is not ashamed. He preached the gospel of God. Now you will not be able to stick through the book of Romans and be a fence sitter. There's something about Romans that is unusual. There's a magnetism to it that if your heart is open, it will draw you deep into the Word of God and will drive you towards the living God where you become fuller and fuller a bond slave of Christ. But if you are unwilling to respond to the truth, this letter will send you in the opposite direction. You cannot remain neutral and be exposed to this book. And really, that's the way it ought to be. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, a bondservant, an apostle, and like us, entrusted with the gospel of God. Help us not to be foolish. Help us to be wise. Help us to understand that you have a plan for each of us, a plan to which you've called us, a, a, a plan to represent Christ as his ambassador, to carry the good news to a lost world. This is not our message. This is your gospel. It is sourced in you. So help us to understand it, to clearly expound it in the power of the Spirit. Teach us as we walk through the book of Romans what it means to walk in intimacy with you. Oh God, I pray for someone who is here today who does not have assurance that heaven is their home. They'd like to go to heaven. They think they might, but they don't know because they've never believed the gospel. You said the gospel of God is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Help them to see, if not today in the days ahead, help them to see, oh God, that the Lord Jesus in his substitutionary death and his declaration through the resurrection showed that he is able to save them and deliver them from the wrath that our sin deserves. Help someone even today to call upon Christ in faith, to believe his word, to rest in it, and to say, Lord Jesus, save me. But help us not to miss as we study this book that this is written to those who are beloved in Rome, called as saints, that this book is for us who have met Christ. Help us to grow deep and further and to be changed, not just academically challenged, not just more intelligent as sinners, but shaped and molded after the person of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his holy and precious name. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled, The Greatest Christian, visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or use the Search the Scriptures app found at the App Store and Google Play Store. At Search the Scriptures, faith and family are two pillars we seek to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you share this goal, won't you consider becoming a foundation partner? For more information, call us at 877-787-7478 and ask about becoming a foundation partner. Together through Christ, we can change the world one heart at a time. Now, we had originally planned to search the Scripture's trip to Israel in October of this year, but because of the uptick in coronavirus cases, the state of Israel is curtailing trips into its borders. 
Consequently, we have rescheduled the trip to May of 2022, and so now is a great time if you've been wanting to go. Visit us online at searchthescriptures.org and get all the details of our amazing trip through the Holy Land. But be sure to act quickly, as we only have through February 8th, and you won't want to miss out on this trip of a lifetime. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our study of Romans with a message entitled, A Vibrant Faith. Join us then as we search the scriptures.